Authenticated encryption, such as AES-GCM or ChaCha20 Poly1305, is used in a wide variety of applications, including potentially in settings for which it was not originally designed. A question given relatively little attention is whether an authenticated encryption scheme guarantees key commitment. The notion that ciphertext should decrypt to a valid plaintext only under the key that was used to generate that ciphertext. In reality, however, protocols and applications do rely on key commitment. A new paper by engineers at Google, the University of Haifa, and Amazon demonstrates three recent applications where missing key commitment is exploitable in practice. They construct AES-GCM ciphertext, which can be decrypted to two plaintexts valid under a wide variety of file formats, such as PDF, Windows executables, and DICOM. And the results may shock you. Anj Albertini is a reverse engineer, malware analyst, and file format enthusiast, having worked on Encryption, encrypting a PNG to a JPEG with AES, on generic reusable hash collisions, uh, malicious SHA-1 and Shattered, and he is currently an InfoSec engineer at Google. Uh, Stefan Kurlbel is a security engineer working at, at Google in Switzerland, where he is responsible for security reviews and development of the cryptographic library Tink. Before, he worked as a researcher on the design and cryptanalysis of cryptographic primitives. During this time, he co-designed several cryptographic algorithms like Haraka, Gimli, Skinny, and Sphinx Plus. Hello, Anj, and hello, Stefan. Hello, Nadim. Thanks for inviting us. Hello, Nadim. Thanks. This is, uh, this is going to be a very good episode, I think. And uh, always when we have discussions that combine two sort of different but related uh, subsets of computing, I think that the result is always very creative and interesting. And I'm happy to say that this is the impression that I got from looking at this paper. Uh, your paper, which uh, seems to combine expertise in file formats and in application sort of like data organization within applications and protocols, and also uh, a sort of analytical look and critical look at authenticated encryption. And the result is that you exploit some property or the, or the lack of existence of a property in authenticated encryption usage called key commitment, and you're able to produce these um, fascinating and honestly quite entertaining results uh, re regarding what you can actually do with files. So before we get into it, I wanted to ask you whether we could, so I know that you guys are not the only um, authors of this work. And so I wanted to make sure that we cover uh, your uh, involvement, but also the involvement of the four other co-authors who weren't able to participate in this interview. So we have Tai Duong, we have Shai Gueron, we have Atul Luix, and we have Sophie Schmig, who um, were not able to uh, participate today. And so I wonder whether you could just give us an overview of all of your contributions into this effort. Yeah, so this work really started in our security engineering team at Google. So both Tai, Atul, and Sophie, and me, we are part of the, the crypto team. And Anj is part of a, another team at the security engineering and 
when we were looking into these issues, we also were looking at uh, the Amazon encryption SDK, and that's how Shai got in. So he's working at Amazon and is also at the University of Haifa. Okay. Um, so let's get started. So what is authenticated encryption? I mean, it's kind of, we kind of assume that the listener knows what that is already to a certain degree, given that this is a cryptography podcast, but I think it's important to cover it uh, because I also want to follow up with uh, a question about the key commitment. And so let's start off with authenticated encryption, maybe a brief introduction or a sort of recap, and then key commitment. How is that a function of authenticated encryption and how does it matter uh, in this work? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, well, encryption typically only ensures you the confidentiality of messages. So in, in, in practice, you really want authenticated encryption because authenticated encryption also gives you assurance about the authenticity and integrity of, of the messages. So the main difference between yeah, encryption, authenticated encryption is that you not only get a ciphertext, but you also get an authentication tag. And this authentication tag allows you to detect if someone, for instance, modified the ciphertext. And there's also yeah, many of these authenticated encryption schemes also support additional data, which is just authenticated, which is very useful if you have like some header information, which you don't want to encrypt. And the main property is really, uh, yeah, as soon as you change something in the ciphertext, it will be possible to detect. And yeah, this topic got quite a lot of traction in the last years also. So we had, a, there was also competition on this, the Caesar competition, where the goal was yeah, to find a new and more robust authenticated encryption schemes. And I think also a lot of listeners will be familiar with the, the NIST lightweight competition going on. And also there, one of the goal is to provide a lightweight authenticated encryption scheme. Okay. Um, so uh, we've all seen authenticated encryption, you know, uh, we've all used or heard of ASGCM or um, ChaCha20, Poly1305, and it's pretty much used everywhere. Um, Signal uses authenticated encryption. Uh, PGP uses uh, sometimes, most of the time, authenticated <laughs> encryption. <laughs> uh, TLS uses authenticated encryption. Some file encryption and, and disk encryption systems rely on authenticated encryption. Sometimes they do stuff that actually goes against authenticated encryption, like ASXTS, for example. Um, and uh, when I read your paper, I realized that authenticated encryption also has roles to play in things that um, might um, be sort of um, non-obvious or have non-obvious results. And a lot of this is due to the uh, notion of key commitment, which seems to be absent from these systems that you guys look at. So what is key commitment? Yeah, so what we mean with key commitment here, so as I said, authenticated encryption gives you ciphertext integrity. So, so maybe intuitively you might assume, so what if I decrypt the ciphertext with a wrong key? I mean, I, I should be able to detect that. It, it kind of feels intuitive, but actually that's not something authenticated encryption guarantees you. It doesn't make any statements about different keys, basically. And this is something, this is the property we're talking about. So this property has been known for a while and it's it's uh, something yeah which people looked into and there are schemes which provide this but in general 
the authenticated encryption schemes, which are widely used, don't necessarily provide this. So and basically, this I can go ahead and encrypt something and I don't really have to, well, I, I guess the name sort of describes it. I don't have to commit to the key and then uh, any party, any honest party can actually end up maybe by mistake or maybe they're coerced by an attacker to use a different key and then um, thanks to a lack of sort of like key commitment procedure there, they could obtain a result that they think resulted from using the correct key, but in reality, it is a different result. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of the danger here because you decrypt with the wrong key, but the scheme will just tell you, oh yeah, this is great. This is authentic. Here, here's the, the plain text and you will not be able to detect it. And I think this is yeah, particularly problematic in practice because it very silently happens when you decrypt and you think it's authentic, then I can use the plain text for anything and the user will not notice. So we, when you think about encryption operations intuitively, you, you, there are pseudorandom permutations. And so uh, with a good encryption function, you very rarely have the ability to control uh, the output. Um, because it's just by definition, it's supposed to be this sort of pseudo random output. But in your paper, you actually are able to exploit uh, a lack of key commitment in order to produce very tightly controlled results. At least it seems to me you're able to make a file decrypt into two different files uh, and stuff like that. And so this is very interesting. And I think maybe we'll cover this um, uh, shortly with Ange who might be able to uh, tell us more about how you were able to manipulate um, the lack of key commitment to produce uh, files that you control so tightly. You know, uh, This is something uh, that, that I think shines uh, through as, as a maybe unexpected result of, of this paper. Uh, but before we get into that, um, maybe we should uh, have a higher level overview of how you've shown that key commitment issues can cause real world security vulnerabilities. So if we look at your paper, uh, you, for example, point out that there is a Google service called subscribe with Google that appears to be affected. Um, and also there are notions of key rotation and envelope encryption in real, real world settings that seem to be affected. And so maybe you can give us uh, a few examples on that. Yeah, I think that the, the envelope encryption is a good example because it's it's quite intuitive maybe here why it's a problem. So what you do with envelope encryption is, so you want to encrypt, for instance, a file. And to encrypt this file, you generate some symmetric key and you encrypt the file with it. And if you want some other party to use it, you attach the key to this file, but you encrypt it with the, for instance, the public key of that person. And if you want to send it to multiple people, you encrypted the same key for uh, multi under multiple public keys for different people. Now, if you send the ciphertext to people and they can all see it's the same ciphertext, but you can encrypt uh, different keys under their public keys. So they cannot detect this because they don't know the, the private keys of the other person. So they cannot see that you put that you did this basically. What then happens Yeah, if they want to decrypt the file, they decrypt their key with their private key and then decrypt the file with the symmetric scheme. And this is exactly where you could abuse a lack of key commitment because I give two people a different key and they both can decrypt the same ciphertext. And in the, in the case, so, there's this other example called subscribe with Google. And I, I want to focus on it because I know that many readers will just see the word Google in there 
and say, wow, the, this this is probably a service that's used by like a billion, bajillion users. And so the impact might be uh, strong. And so maybe you could tell us more about the impact on that sort of service. Yeah, so the, 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 the system there is quite similar to this envelope encryption. So the, the idea is there that uh, a website can provide, for instance, some paid content, which only premium users get. And in principle, it's also same as I said with the envelope encryption. You already serve the content, but it's encrypted. And then some other party who can give authorization of access to this content gets this key encrypted under their public key. So now okay. when, yeah. Uh, so sorry, please go ahead. So yeah, then when a user wants to access this content, basically they would go to this page to get the encrypted content. And then they make a request to the, the, the third party, which authorizes them. Let's say, hey, I paid for this content. Uh, could you please uh, decrypt this for me? But so now comes the kind of the issue, like I could again do this, this trick, like, okay, I would give some content, which is a ciphertext, but I have two keys, which would decrypt the ciphertext. And then I give these two different keys to two different authorizers. And depending on which authorizer uh, legitimates this this content, they would decrypt to a different content. And yeah, this this was something we noticed. So we we had a internal security review on this, and there we were like, ah, this is something where key commitment is important. And so it, it was never launched without the key commitment in the end. And one last example, I I do want to jump to Ange uh, quickly because. Uh, I, I think that it's about about time he he was able to contribute yes. and say something. <laughs> but um, so for our listeners, um, the reason why we've had uh, Stefan uh, speak uninterrupted for so long is because he is the cryptography expert here and Ange is the file formats expert. And so I, I do look forward to Ange's contributions. But just uh, one, one last question before we switch over is that um, I see that Facebook Messenger is mentioned a few times in the paper. And I was just wondering, uh, to be honest, I, I wasn't able to read enough of the paper to to understand fully the relevance of Facebook Messenger. And mm -hmm. I also, when I look at the real world settings uh, section, which is probably the one when I that I read the more most closely, uh, section number two in the, of the paper, uh, I didn't really see. Um, no, I mean it doesn't seem so. So why why is there so many mentions of Facebook Messenger? Yeah, so I think they, there was a very nice paper by Doris Groups, Ristenbart, and Woodage where they, I think they they showed for the first time really that this key commitment or lack of key commitment can be an issue in practical applications. And so in Facebook Messenger, they had like a abuse reporting system. So if someone sends you some offensive content, you could report this basically. And as it's a end-to-end -end encrypted messenger, you kind of get a cryptographic proof because the person authenticated their messages. Yes, message franking it. is what it was called, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. But yeah, that on a high level view, the issue was there that the, the abuse reporting, as far as I remember, it only decrypted unique ciphertexts. So if you send the same ciphertext twice to a person, it would only report one of them. And what the trick there was again, yeah, this, this, for instance, if you send two images, they were both encrypted with AES GCM. And they showed that you can do this. So you get the same ciphertext with different keys. 
And then the abuse reporting system would only show one of those images while the other person would see both of them. So this was okay. really, I think, the first nice example really showing this could be exploited in practice. And it's also something which kind of inspired us to look more into are there practical issues on this? I understand. So basically, it's prior art that inspired and also yes. exemplified the um, absolutely the kind of work that, that is done here. So, Aj. Hello. Um, yes. Hello. How are you? All good. <laughs> scared, so, scared by all this crypto knowledge stuff. Um, well, that's okay because uh, the kind of the kind of questions that are heading your way are, I, I think, a bit different. So, yeah. uh, really, I mean, for me, as a as more of a crypto person myself, and not very much a file format person, um, I again, you know, I, I look at something like the lack of key commitment, and I'm able to understand uh, at least uh, intuitively in a quick sense why this would be an issue but i what i don't understand at all i am very surprised by this is that you're able to exploit this uh, sort of you know because when you when you input a different key you, just generally speaking you're you're operating under the assumption that you're not going to be able to have any sort of prior knowledge of how this this is going to affect uh, the plain text upon decryption like you know that there's there's going to be some change but there is no sort of like efficient mapping that you have in order to sort of know exactly how this different key is going to influence uh the output plain text um and this this goes totally in line with all sorts of assumptions that many people may have on uh, authenticated encryption schemes such as ASGCM for example but in this case in this paper uh you're able to create files that just decrypt into two different files, right? And these two different files, like two different PDFs, for example, are readable. They they open into readable PDFs and they they parse correctly. And you seem to have a very sort of strong level of control over the resulting uh, two files. And so, um, in order to get into how you were able to do this, maybe we should introduce uh, file formats in general. So, could you start maybe by telling us uh, what are the characteristics of a file format? And then from there, we can go into understanding them in more detail and understanding how we're able to control them in order to obtain these results. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so uh, overall, uh, file formats, uh, uh, so a file format, again, is a, a structure that's in a file makes a parser validate the file. So it's like, that. this is a, first one thing that is important is that uh, it doesn't mean that there should be only one file. As soon as as long as one parser is happy with some contents of that file, then that file is valid from a format perspective, but it doesn't exclude that it's valid from another parser, or an, which means another format perspective. So first things is that to, uh, file format is a structure that starts typically with a header, and most of the format enforce the header at the offset zero, at the start of the file, and since most headers uh, enforce a magic signatures like a sequence of bytes, a precise sequence of bytes at the very beginning, uh, you cannot have simultaneously two different values. I mean, it, in a written state, <laughs> on the same hard disk, in the same at, at a static level, you cannot have a file starting with different values at the same offset. Therefore, you cannot have two formats that are enforced at offset zero uh, simultaneously in the same file. 
Then just after this header, which typically defines the metadata or the characteristics of the files, like uh, image dimensions or video durations of this kind of thing, then there is the body. So the body directly follows the header and the body contains the main data. And then at the end of the body, usually there's a footer, a, some kind of terminator uh, that says to the parser, okay, uh, this file is complete from a format from the current format perspective we are analyzing. Therefore, just ignore the rest. So all these three elements have very important uh, characteristics. But on the other hand, we don't need to understand fully the, all the details of the format. Uh, yeah. Okay, but uh, you still you still need to understand a certain level of tricks in order to combine uh, several file formats together. Um, and also to produce uh, different files from 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 a same starting point, and so um, how here 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 in our notes uh, you've mentioned certain techniques um, like uh, starting at non-zero, which I think uh, is, is is covered a little bit already. Uh, cavities, uh, appended data, and, and something called parasite, which sounds uh, very exciting. So um, could you please tell us? Uh, more about what sort of techniques you're exploiting in order to make this possible. So indeed, as I said, if the the header, if uh, the header, so we let's okay, so let's say we want to put two formats in the same file. If both formats are start with the magic and are enforced out of Z zero, these two formats cannot coexist in the same file. So basically, you will look for a format that will typically not be enforced at offset zero. Typically, archive formats are like this, so like zip. Um, uh, sometimes it's officially they have to start at the offset zero, and then, but in practice, there, it, there is some uh, uh, flex flexibility. There is some flexibility that uh, you can put the format a bit later, and the file will still be valid. Some formats natively start with. Uh, empty bytes uh, for various reasons, which I call a cavity. In this case, if you have a space, for example, if you take an ISO image, uh, typically they start with eight kilobytes of zeros. If you uh, if you just put any file, uh, if you put a small PNG image in this eight kilobytes, both files will be valid. Uh, as I, as I mentioned before, uh, file formats typically have a way to tell the parser that this file is over. Like there's a footer or there's a declaration of the file size or there's a declaration of the number of elements, which means at some point the parser will just ignore what's after. So therefore, if you just append another format, another format after this end of the other format, then two formats coexist. So basically, if you concatenate, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, this is the next part. Now, the last thing, the parasite, is that uh, typically many formats uh, make it possible that you have some kind of comment in the file, which, which is typically uh, a string of text where you can say the origin of the file or whatever, the created by GIMP or this kind of string. However, in practice, these comments are just can be of can be very long, can be repeated. Uh, some so, for example, in a PNG, a comment can be like two gigabytes or four gigabytes. This space that of the comment declaration is just entirely ignored by the parser, which means you can put any data in it. So we can see that you can put another format as a parasite inside 
a, for, an, a format. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I do think that makes sense. Uh, so these techniques are also apparently the same techniques that you use uh, in an automated uh, fashion via the Mitra software that you have written. Uh, which we're going to link in the description below, which is a tool to generate uh, binary polyglots, uh, files that are valid with several different file formats. And if we look at the um, methodology that Mitra uses to do this, uh, it automatically tries uh, to do it via stacks, cavities, parasites, uh, zippers also. And uh, I guess that, uh, so this is an automated framework that you've developed. And uh, we can even see a table here uh, that sort of tells you which files you're able to combine with other files. So like, you know, zip and zip. Um, hmm. So what does a, is, does a dot mean no, or does an X mean yes? I'm not. Well, the problem is that, uh, can you be, uh, can you, uh, is, a, is a sentence in a single language a polyglot? If it's the same language, you see, it's not the same category. It's difficult. It's technically possible, but here, yes, uh, basically the zip will be valid, of course, but I think it's not necessarily possible to have two different contents because these files with different contents of the same file type, I don't see them as polyglots, right? They are an entire different problem. Okay. And all right, so we have this notion of binary polyglots and we have this notion of um, authenticated encryption uh, and, and lack of key commitment that we've, that we've explained. And so this is the biggest question, the most important question to me about this entire episode. How are you able to combine your knowledge of binary polyglots and the knowledge of exploiting authenticated encryption in order to control how decryption gives you um, a different format that is also, uh, sorry, a different result that is also valid and that parses into something valid? Because yes, we, we are able to create a polyglot but um, well, what um, what's what's missing for me here still is how you're able to use this in order to um, know which which key to use to obtain a, a different uh, plain text that is nevertheless valid and not just a bunch of garbage when decrypted. Yeah, I can maybe quickly explain a bit on on, on the tech where this where it, what the, what are the conditions basically you get on the yes. plain text. So because when you have for instance, in GCM, you just encrypt and decrypt with counter mode. So we have one ciphertext now, and we XOR two different key streams to the ciphertext and get some plain text. But now, yeah, the interesting thing is, for instance, if I want to fix the, the first 16 bytes in the first plain text, I can just choose the ciphertext to be, if I XOR it with the key stream, to give me the first 16 bytes of the plain text I want. Now, what this means for the second plain text is that I will get very likely 16 bytes of garbage because it's a different key stream. I cannot control it unless the encryption would be broken. And this is kind of the issues you have to solve here because you, you have to put garbage in one file or in the other file. I mean, with some costs, you can get some overlap, but it's quite expensive after a few bytes. And yeah, I think Arch can explain to you how you can hide this garbage quite well in, in the files that it doesn't matter too much. Well, yeah, that's, um, so basically the point of making a polyglot is that not only you have two valid contents, but 
the valid content is ignored by the parser of the other format. So when you, for example, just take a gzip and a zip. If you concatenate the zip at the end of the gzip, uh, the gzip will be valid because the gzip starts at the beginning of the file and the zip will be valid because zip uh, parses from the bottom. Therefore, by just taking any gzip and a zip and just concatenating that in that order. So again, zip and gzip will not work because gzip has to start at offset zero. And just because gzip, the gzip parser will see the gzip data and then ignore the rest of the of the zip, it will be fine as a gzip. And again, the zip parser will look for zip data, will ignore the gzip data until it meets the zip, the zip data, and then uh, the file will be considered valid. So in both cases, the parser of each side is ignoring the others, con the other content, which is why it works with zip data. So it could also work with totally uh, random data that comes out of decryption with the wrong key. Mm-hmm. So now I understand. So basically, you're not controlling it such that it produces desired plain text. You are controlling which part of the plain text gets corrupted, basically, and which part does not. Is that is that an accurate sort of summary? Yeah, I think it it, it depends a bit on the scheme. So in, in GCM, it's it's uh, basically like that, and we need one extra block. So it's, you need another sixteen bytes to basically correct the tag. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this attack has been known for a while. And in, we also looked at a GCM SRV, and it's also very similar. You need a bit more blocks. And so and you're you're targeting uh, your goal is to is to is to decrypt such that some target is uh, just completely scrambled, and then when the file is being opened, that part of the file gets ignored, and then the file gets read as the second file format instead, the one that pended uh, at the end of the file or something. Or in the original case, then the uh, first file is read. And so, um, uh, cool. That 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 definitely um, makes a lot of sense. And I was wondering, do you have different results with different file readers? Like maybe uh, one PDF reader will will insist on reading the first part uh, always or the, or the second part always uh, of the file maybe maybe some uh, PDF or not PDF readers like some some image readers or video file you know whatever like any application that opens a file format or maybe a zip uh, an, an unzip program uh, will will be biased towards the second file and always or biased towards the first file always or do they all do, do all the programs that you've tested seem to treat uh, these polyglot files in the same way no, it's a total mess. And uh, each, uh, I mean, this, each of them, each software is an interpretation of the specifications. I think the worst is that PDF.js, the Mozilla JavaScript reader that is used in Firefox, actually doesn't even need a PDF signature at the beginning of the PDF. It just requires a single space, which is pretty crazy. Uh, so they all have very, very uh, different, not only uh, uh, compatibility uh, possibilities, but also uh, their own ways of interpreting the specification. And uh, for example, zip is can be also tricky. Uh, I know that Ruby is totally disrespecting the specification. And for example, uh, JZip zip polyglot may not work if you open it with Ruby, but it will work with most standard tools typically with a warning, and some software will not even produce a single warning. That is the most uh, expected answer. 
that's that's what always happens when you have all of these formats and specs and everyone does their own thing. And indeed, uh, when we did uh, SHA-1 uh, collision proof of concept, the, we initially had some better strategy, but they were basically the techniques we were using was only supported. It's not even mis, uh, misread. It was just lack of support in all the readers except Adobe Reader. And therefore, we went for a simpler technique uh, that had a higher uh, per percentage co compatibility, better coverage among, among software. Yep, that that makes that makes a lot of sense. Uh, okay, so I think that we understand how this research works and the real world impact. Uh, as a matter of fact, if I recall correctly, I don't know whether I'm remembering this correctly, but I thought I, I think that you said on on your Twitter feed that the PDF itself for the paper actually can be sort of decrypted into something else, maybe. Um, or like it's the PDF for the for the paper is itself a proof of concept of the uh, results of the paper. Is that right? Yes, totally. I definitely wanted to prove uh, our uh, our findings, and the PDF itself is a combination of a PDF and a, a Windows executable, so portable executable, and this portable executable is a PDF reader. So basically, you can extract a PDF reader from the content of the, the file itself, which is by default a PDF. So when you download the PDF file, which is a PDF paper on imprint, and then you, if you run two OpenSSL statements, you actually get from the same file a PDF reader that is uh, fully standard. I mean the the way the and readers perf the way the reader performs is standard is op is a is a known software, but just the file is a bit unusual. Let's say, and then you can read the PDF in the PDF reader that you got from the PDF. In and then you put the PDF in the PDF reader and get that PDF also. Absolutely, uh, which means. Uh, uh, the, we, that was done just with the final PDF and the executable of the reader, which means you, we could reuse exactly the same attack, the same technique, and the scripts are public uh, to just, uh, if you ask me for a PDF, I send you a PDF that is also combined with the malware I chose. And if, for example, there is a key rotation system that makes the key um, change over time, and if I knew that in advance, then the file you download that you thought was a PDF will eventually be a wannacry.exe and a different result could uh, uh, happen. Uh, let's not give people any ideas. Um, so how can we remedy the vulnerabilities <laughs> shown here and how can we best address key commitment issues in examined uh, protocols and applications. So the paper mentions that uh, addressing key commitment issues is not particularly difficult and it would eliminate uh, this sort of vulnerability. Could you give us a recap on, on how yeah. this can be done? So there's actually all been quite work in this is in this area on making schemes more robust. And but what we were lacking kind of is that all previous solutions, they were either not plugin compatible. So if I use AES-GCM in my software, I, I, I don't want to replace the, the encryption algorithm. Or they were more costly, like typically they had to process uh, the whole message. And this is something which 
users typically not want. It was also actually the case of the Facebook Messenger. They explicitly used ASGCM because of the performance. So yeah, in the in the paper, we actually proposing uh, two different solutions. So the first is like it seems very obvious to do that. So what we suggest is in the case of ASGCM, you just add a block of zeros in the beginning, and if you decrypt, you then check is the block still all zeros. And if so, then you know that the correct key was used with very high probability. And so that's a quite simple solution that you can easily still use that in if you have like a standard API for ESGCM. I think it's also quite interesting because it, it raises some questions about uh, the security of the block cipher. So for this construction, we assume that it's an ideal block cipher, but if you use AES, then suddenly it's not so clear. Can you find such a pair? So also to all the, the crypto analysis out there, we couldn't find that anywhere in the literature. So can you construct uh, a pair of, uh, so you have two keys and you encrypt zero with AES such that the ciphertexts are the same. So you can control the keys but the input is fixed and you want to find a collision. So I see. Qu quite interesting if somebody could show that this is possible. And I mean, with very high probability, this must exist, especially for, for, I think for so, larger yeah. keys, it's guaranteed. I think, I think you're going to need a lot more computational effort, though, for something like that. Yeah, exactly. It's, but that's like yeah, one solution we have. And the other solution is basically you take the key and you apply a PIF to derive a commitment and you derive another key, which is then used for the encryption. And then you can basically check here, yeah, un unless this you can get collisions for this PIF, you basically have a guarantee that you cannot break this commitment. And this was actually the solution also, which Amazon then deployed in to address the, the issue raised in the encryption SDK. Okay. Um, that sounds good to me. So I think that, uh, that, that is pretty much it for this episode. Um, do you guys have anything to add uh, any, any part of the paper that you would like to highlight, uh, before we sign off? Yeah, maybe just one in, in general highlight. I think the, the, the big issue here is that we yeah, we have a lot of different authenticated encryption schemes, but they have different properties. And this can be very confusing in general in cryptography that we have schemes which fall in some category and they have surprising properties. I mean, you have like small subgroups in elliptic curves, you have mailability of signatures and... Signatures for sure. The biggest one for me, I am always shocked by yes. how you get nothing from signatures. Um, even if you look at fancy new signatures like ED25519, it's just, it's crazy how, um, and this yeah, is something. I mean, as a cryptographic engineer, you tell people, oh, use authenticated encryption. But yeah, if you use this scheme, then maybe you should be careful if you require a key commitment. And if you yeah. use signatures, mm, do you care if someone can change the, the parts of the signature? Often, yes. Uh, <laughs> this has been something so, um, this is actually, I think like this is episode 10. This is the first time in this entire podcast that I mention what I do. And so I actually, I do software audits all the time and, uh, malleability in ED25519 comes up 
constantly. People use it for signing in all kinds of protocols. And um, uh, and can you blame them? Because the sort of um, textbook definition, like just not textbook, I guess, uh, intuitive, like sort of uh, definition of signing, as in like signing a piece of paper or signing a contract, uh, definitely does not um, entail like any sort of malleability issues. But then the way that you see it inside this primitive is really just nuts. It blows my mind. And uh, it's true that the, this key, um, key commitment issue with authenticated encryption does draw some parallels. Yeah, I think in general, it, it would be just better to, to, to strive for a stronger security notion if it's not too costly. Absolutely. And, and we were also a bit surprised that this was not too much. So we had the, the CISA competition and also the, the NIST lightweight competition. And for instance, this issue is not, I mean, we made a lot of progress on like the issue with the nonce or release of unverified plain text, but not so much on, for instance, the key commitment. Okay. Uh, Ange, anything to add from your side? Yes. So, um, so this is my first uh, actual academic paper where I really contributed and also my first uh, cryptographic podcast. And uh, for me, uh, uh, I, I really, I definitely want to be able to understand how far you can by you, uh, some, I worked before on hash collisions. I, this is now about key commitment. These are two known weakness, but uh, overlooked, and a lot of software still use MD5 or SHA1. And in the sim, in the two in the two cases, I wanted to sh to show how much you could go, and uh, exactly like a couple of years ago, I was trying to kill uh, MD5 as much as I could by providing workshop and knowledge and uh, hash collisions and script to automatically generate your hash collisions. And if you're in tutorials to to teach people, because not everyone is doing necessarily cryptographic research, but if you're just doing a pen test uh, of a system that is indexing files by MD5, within a couple of hours, you could produ produce uh, uh, automatic instant generic uh, collisions with some file format tricks. And here it's the same. People knew GCM was out there. People knew it was broken. But the only example before was just a single BMP and a JPEG colliding uh, via uh, GCM-wise uh, for, for Facebook. And now we provide the software to actually understand what you need to, to, to find out and how you can really make your own uh, attacks. And I think it's very important in general that cryptographics, cryptographic, cryptographers, sorry, cryptographers find weaknesses. But sometimes it's like, yeah, it exists, but people still use them in practice. And when you provide a script and the knowledge to do such a script that gives people instant exploit, then people actually deprecate systems. Files, I led files to do talking, and this is very important. So maybe I don't know what will be in the next uh, cryptographic feature that I will look at and kill as much as I can uh, from uh, yeah, a practical perspective. But yeah, you will see what's come out with our next PDF, I guess. OK. Uh, I'm looking forward to it very much. Um, well, thank you very much, uh, Stefan, and uh, thank you very much, Ange, both uh, 
engineers at Google and uh, co-authors of the paper, which, uh, darn, I don't think we even said the name of the paper. Uh, it's called How to Abuse and Fix Authenticated Encryption Without Key Commitment by Ange Albertini, Tai Duong, Shai Guerron, Stefan Krulbel, Atul Luix, and Sophie Schmig. Um, the link for the paper obviously will be available. Uh, in the podcast description on ePrint, as well as a link to uh, Ange's tool, Mitra, for generating your own binary polyglots. I also recommend uh, following uh, Ange and Stefan on Twitter because they post a lot of interesting stuff all the time, uh, and uh, links uh, to that will also be uh, present in the speaker bios on our website, Cryptography FM. And that's it for this week's episode. Um, if you are also working on your own research that combines uh, cryptography with file formats, or maybe with... Uh, I don't know, video games or uh, uh, cooking or uh, a new way to, uh, I don't know, the deniable laundry, uh, whatever. It, it's probably very interesting. And so maybe you can come and talk about it next time on Cryptography FM, a show made for you to uh, engage in a new form of discussion on interesting applied cryptography research. Uh, and so if you have anything interesting you want to talk about, I want you here on this show to discuss it. But whether you're a listener or an active participant, I hope to see you again next week on Cryptography FM. <laughs>